welcome to another edition of The Illumined Heart with co-hosts Kevin Allen and Steve McMeans. Orthodox dialogue to illumine the heart, discussing the issues that inform, form, and transform. This is a production of Ancient Faith Radio and St. Barnabas Orthodox Church in Costa Mesa, California. Welcome to this edition of the Illumined Heart Radio program. I'm Kevin Allen. And I'm Steve McMeans. And today my guest on the program in studio is Archpriest John Braun, and we'll be speaking to Father John about the topic from Campus Crusade to Constantinople and uh, talking about his history in the uh, Christian movement and in the Orthodox Church. Father John is an archpriest, former Campus Crusade staff member, author of books, Divine Energy and Whatever Happened to Hell. He was the leader of the Evangelical Orthodox Church that led 2000 into the canonical Antiochian Archdiocese in 1987, which opened the door to many of us and 10,000s of others who followed. And he's currently the pastor of St. Anthony Church in La Jolla, California. Father John, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Just hope, uh, hope I've got the stuff you want. <laughs> I, I think you will. I, I'll mention that you're, you, you've got a little laryngitis. So, uh, Whoa, do I ever. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to speak through, uh, through that. Well, Father John, you were a well-known uh, Campus Crusade for Christ speaker on college campuses across the U.S. And obviously, you, you knew your audience. From what you see today, do you think that the issues and challenges for college kids in particular have changed, have, have gotten more complicated in any way since when you preached? Well, yes, there's always going to be change. Anytime you let that many years go by, I left Campus Crusade for Christ in active campus ministry in about 1968. Now, I lived just blocks away from the University of California, Santa Barbara for 25 years. And that, w- that way I was able to keep my finger on the pulse of what was going on on the campus. There are always changes. And I, what I would say the biggest change is, is there is a significant difference in what college students look at appro- as appropriate morality today. There is also a much greater skepticism with respect to, to religion in general and Christianity in particular. Actually, a little bit often hostility, uh, not just as Orthodox Christianity, towards any kind of Christianity. Uh, more of an openness to something like New Age, though, you know, not that many students are into that. So those are our two major differences. In, and then I think there is another issue. Uh, I think that college students today, when, when they look at their future, they simply don't have the bright prospects that the kids that were on the campus in the 60s and even the 70s had. They're not going to make as much money proportionately in all likelihood, and the opportunities aren't going to be quite as great. At least that's their impression. Yeah, the whole postmodern ethos that's out there of uh, skepticism and uh lack of optimism and, and not believing meta, mega narratives of any kind, whether they be Christian or Jewish or... Absolutely, absolutely. The, the skepticism is, is important. They're, they're supposed to be skeptical. They're actually being taught to be skeptical. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which I appreciate that. I, I'm kind of skeptical, to tell you the truth. And I would not be a believer if you don't give me evidence. I've got to have some, and I think much preaching has been done. Uh, in the collegiate world and in just 
the population at large where claims are made, but where there's no supporting evidence. When you preach to college kids on Campus Crusade, I unfortunately wasn't able to to hear them. I wasn't. Oh, it was a great loss that you couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) I was somewhere else doing something else, I'm afraid. But um, I'm assuming that your messages were sort of creative variations on the standard evangelical theme of you know, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, You're a sinner. Christ paid the price for your sins. Accept him as your personal savior. Is that it? Well, yes, it's interesting because back in those days, even though I could barely spell orthodox, that's an exaggeration, but I also had a very clear sense that what the Bible taught was that at the very heart of salvation was union with Jesus Christ. So what -hmm. happened is that on the one hand, I had this idea of of Christ paying a penalty for our sins. And I don't know how many thousand times that I would have said that. Because, you know, day after day after day, I, I spoke on the average of five times a day, plus maybe, I don't know how many interviews one on one with students and always ended the same way. You know, when Christ died on the cross, for how many of your sins did he die? Did he pay the penalty for them all? But I also knew down inside my guts, uh, oh, maybe from the time I was in my late 20s, I knew that the Bible taught very clearly that there was, there was a, a thing that was called that we were in union with Christ, that Jesus said, I and my father are one. And then he said, you and I will be one. John chapter 17. And I didn't know how to put those two together. And so I taught the one as a legal payment of a penalty and the other as what we called a positional truth that I was one with Christ, but not really. But my God saw it as though we were one, but it really wasn't that way at all. But that's that's where the problem was. Well, how would you preach the gospel message today if you're standing in front of 5,000 college students knowing what you know now? Well, what I would say today, and in some ways I would say the same thing. Uh, you know, when, when you do a thing so many thousand times, it just comes easily. And I would end inevitably with something like this. Some of you tonight are saying, this makes sense to you. What I've said makes sense to you. And you'd like to know how you can become a Christian as I've spoken about it tonight. And if you would like to know how you can do that, I would like to ask you to pray with me tonight and ask Christ to come into your heart. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing to say. It's just very, very watered down. What I would say today is Christ died for you. He, the good news is that God became a man. That's the really good news. If you want to get down to the most important thing that has ever happened in the human history is that the eternal son of the father stepped out of heaven as it were and became a human being in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a man and he became a man so that I can become identified, genuinely identified with him in his humanity. Now, With that being the case, what I would say to a college student or to an audience of college students is what you need is to experience the reality of living a life that is conducted in union with Jesus Christ. And this is done. This can happen in your life. You're going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit because that's the way it works. But Christ will he will come into your life. But beyond that, you join into a union with him. 
Now, where the difference would come, Kevin, the big difference is how does that happen? That's the big issue. I always knew this. How many times in my life did I quote John chapter 3? I mean, thousands of times I quoted it. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you know, virtually every time I said that, I knew what that meant. Hmm. I actually knew that it had to do with water. Hmm. I knew that it had to do with baptism. I mean, that's what Jesus obviously meant. There's not any question about it. I had to be taught that that wasn't what Jesus meant. As a child, I knew it was what Jesus meant. So the difference is now it's pretty hard to give an altar call for a baptism. But what you, I'll tell you what you give the call to today. The call is that you come to the church yeah. because that's where the baptism is going to take place. Mm. You come to the church. Mm. Jesus didn't establish individual private religion. He established mm. the church. Mm. And that's where the relationship works out. So you can essentially lead people with, obviously, the, the help of the Holy Spirit to conversion from the stadium. Yes. But at the end of the day, to be in union with him, it must be through his church, through baptism, through the Eucharist. It's going to have to happen that way. Now, there's a, there's a problem in this because not only in the days when, when I was out preaching on campus, and I still do some, but... Even today, you will find a huge percentage of the population that has been baptized. Yeah. Now, people can quibble over, well, did it have to be a baptism in an Orthodox church? Or are there baptisms we recognize? Well, of course, there are baptisms that we recognize. So one of the things that you must deal with when you're out on the campus is there are, there's going to be a response. Let me just tell you a little story. Last night... I actually spoke to a group of probably 125 people at the Salvation Army in San Diego. Hmm. And I, I was called on to give this little talk about five minutes before it had to happen. But at my age, you better have some sugar sticks at hand. <laughs> and so I took out a sugar stick and I talked about the whole idea of, you know, th these are homeless people. It's not actually a Salvation Army program. These are homeless people, and the Salvation Army opens their doors so that various churches in the community can come in and feed them. So here's what I spoke on. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not... And I said, I want you people to say this with me. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And I said, for many of you, that's not a reality tonight, is it? You're just going to be looking for a good place on the sidewalk. It's not going to be green pastures. It's not going to be cool water. Hopefully, it's a place that's sheltered from the weather. Then how can you have the Lord as your shepherd? The problem is, the problem is that many of these people have divorced themselves from the church. Almost, do you know in that room of 125 people, I'll bet 75 of them knew the 23rd Psalm by heart. Hmm. They even said it with me. But what had happened somewhere along the line, their lives become so divorced from the church, baptized, even professing Christians, but not able to experience the reality of Christ in their lives because that experience is going to take place in the church. Through his body. Through his body, through his blood. Yeah. And through the illumination. You know, baptism is illumination. For, for centuries, baptism was a, a synonym for baptism was illumination. 
And there are people who have had, you know, there's types of illumination. There's a thing we might call a glimpse. And then there's maybe a fairly clear picture. And then there's grand illumination. Well, most of us have some degree or or another of that. However, the problem is it's in the church where that illumination takes on fullness. When, When you and several other men... Uh, Father Jack Sparks, Father Peter Gilquist, Father Richard Ballou, and others led what was then known as the Evangelical Orthodox Church, a national group of about 2,000 or so, into the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese in 1987. Did you have any idea of the impact that your conversion would have um, in the Christian world, one? And then two, what do you think the impact has been? And three, is it what you expected? Well, I'd have to answer that in several ways. First, there's three questions. We did anticipate an impact. I'll tell you why. We were watched very closely. We actually were fairly well known in the Christian world. We were sort of bright and shining young stars in the evangelical Christian world. And we had had great exposure out on the campus. So as this journey was culminating, Christianity Today, Eternity Magazine, Moody Monthly would carry articles about it, and not necessarily condemnatory. As a matter of fact, they were generally fairly positive. But it was it was not by chance. Uh, it, it was not just overnight that this happened, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the evangelical world, because that's the world we were from, we were card-carrying members of it. I mean that in a good sense. Not not I don't mean that disrespectfully. We were heart and soul in it. So it didn't happen just overnight that all of a sudden they hear that, that a couple of thousand evangelicals have become orthodox. Furthermore, we had some really good ink in the New York Times, in the Los Angeles Times, and wire services, because as Metropolitan Philip Saliba said when the largest group of us came in, nothing like this had happened in the Orthodox Church uh, since Pentecost, that's, that's not quite true because Russia, you know, converted in mass. But nothing ever in America had happened like this. So we expected that there would be an impact. We also knew that there would be great difficulties because we knew that many people would seek out an Orthodox church. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it's just, it's just what is. Sometimes they would go to a church where they understood very little of the service because it was in a foreign language. Now, we shouldn't put that down. My father grew up in a foreign language speaking church. It just happened to be a dialect of German. And all the services were conducted in Plautdeutsch. Uh, So when we condemn Orthodox churches for using a foreign language, um, it was in my father's generation that he was raised on that. And my wife was raised in a church, Yash or Yabetcha, hmm. that until when she was just a little girl, they changed from Swedish to hmm. English. Hmm. So, uh, but what happened is the impact was somewhat limited because people's exposure to orthodoxy, once they confronted it, was often a little off-putting because of the language barrier. Well, what, what do you think the impact has been? Well, you know, I, I hate to think about that too much. I appreciate being asked the question. It's easy to either overestimate and therefore do something with respect to self-esteem that's not appropriate. I think 
what actually happened in the whole aggregate of things, not just that group that came then, in, in what's happened since. I think what has actually taken place is many, many, many more people actually have come to Christ than we thought would initially. On the one hand, I expected thousands to come. On the other hand, we hadn't seen it yet. But it, it isn't just the group that I came with. It's you. You came in and you, how many people do you know in your own church? Almost everyone is a convert to orthodoxy. Right. Most of them from evangelicalism. Well, this, this radio program and this radio station that we're broadcasting on is the fruit of the door being opened and ex-evangelicals coming in and, and seeing an opportunity. Now, I wouldn't want to say that all that happened because of just our group. I think things take place historically in terms of movement. And sometimes you're on the front end of a movement and sometimes you're on the back end of a movement. But God seems to deal in, in spiritual movements. I actually believe that in, in terms of the work we did with Campus Crusade for Christ. When I went on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, there were 35 on the staff. Today there's about 15,000, I don't know, maybe more. But in those years, when those of us who actually left Campus Crusade, in those years, it just exploded. And what we, we knew that it was a movement that was taking place. You can't make a thing like that. And it, God has to be involved in that in one way or another. And I believe soil was being prepared, if not in the students we spoke to, but even in those of us ourselves. Well, do you see the trends, Father uh, John Braun, being more or less favorable for acceptance of the Orthodox Church and faith in America today than when you entered in 87? I think we've spoken a bit about that. Much more favorable. And I will explain very clearly why. Two words. Mystery, and I'll relate to that sacrament, and liturgy. People are tired of entertainment in the, in the world of Christianity. Now, I happen to like Christian entertainment. I can enjoy listening to a Christian radio station that, that plays a lot of contemporary Christian music. And I really like it. But I don't like it when I go to worship God. If I'm going to be before the Lord, the all-holy trinity, his mother, his apostles, all the saints of all the ages, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if the angels are going to be listening, we've got to have an appropriate service for all of those parties to participate in. And I think unquestionably there is a great recognition that was not there when I was on the campus in those 40 years ago, and even in succeeding years, there is a recognition there's got to be to more, uh, more to worship than, you know, clapping your hands and singing some nice songs, uh, though those are nice. But that's not worship. The worship, that liturgical worship, that, that, that which has endured all of these centuries, that's vital because people are recognizing that because it gives stability. Secondly, the whole idea of mystery, that you simply can't understand everything about faith. There's just things you have to accept. It's a mystery. If you were to ask me, or if anybody asks me, how does that bread and how does that wine become the body and blood of Christ? I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to say. O-G-M. 
Oh, great mystery. The minute I try to explain it, something is lost and I'm going to be in trouble because it can't be explained. Something God does. It's a miracle. So when you say, is there more of a, uh, an acceptance trend, a trend? Yes. Not only in terms of religion, I think there's even a trend growing even politically and socially. I, I think people are looking for more stability, not everyone, but I think many people want much more in terms of stability, dignity, uh, and, and respect in terms of their worship, in terms of their faith. Yeah, I, and, and I would think you, you also would agree that the whole connection to the history and the continuity of the faith we call the apostolic tradition is also an important link. Well, what, what that gives is validation to what we're doing. I had an interesting conversation. I spoke to a group of uh, Roman Catholic graduate students hmm. three nights ago. And one of the questions that one of the young ladies asked was, well, do you have a pope? And I literally started to laugh. Now, not because about the whole idea of a papacy. I just started to laugh. And here's how I answered her question. I said, we are absolutely the most disorganized church on the face of God's green earth. We do not have a centralized authority. We do have a hierarchical structure. And yet next Sunday, we're all going to read the same gospel. We're all going to read the same epistle. We're all going to do the same liturgy. We're going to sing the same hymns. And how can I explain that? And she, she looked... You know, blinking, she was sort of blinking like a toad in the rain because she couldn't fathom that because there's more diversity in her church than there is in mine. But I could, I could sense with all the kids in that group, there was a sense in which that was very attractive to them because when you have to be a worship leader in a church, that's sort of a new term. I, that, I didn't grow up on the idea of a worship leader, but many churches have what's called a worship leader. We don't have worship leaders. A worship leader has to come up with something new every week or it gets boring and dull. We just do the same thing every week. And yet for 2,000 years, the people keep coming back. You never hear someone say, gee, I was bored at the liturgy or I, I didn't like this. Remember how we used to come oh, out of church yeah. and people would say, how was it? I.e., how did the pastor preach? And you'd say, well, he was pretty good today. Or, you know, I, it was over my head. You never hear that. Well, you've got to be really careful walking out of church and say, well, the body and blood of Christ wasn't really very good today. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I think the, the, the presupposition of why you're yeah. there is different in the first place. Exactly. And so your expectations, as somebody, I think my wife said, how could church never be wonderful? Kevin, going back to a question you raised a few minutes ago on um, differences and my expectations. And, you know, we do serve the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, the vast majority of the Sundays of the year. St. John Chrysostom was a remarkable preacher. As a matter of fact, when Father Peter Gilquist was at Dallas Theological Seminary, there was something very ironic. In those days, directly across from the entrance of Dallas Seminary was a Greek Orthodox church. Across the street is Dallas Theological Seminary. 
At Dallas Seminary, they study the commentaries of St. John Chrysostom. At the Greek Orthodox Church, they do the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and neither of them knew each other existed. How funny. Now, what, one thing that was a surprise to me is not that preaching is not important in the Orthodox Church, but preaching is never the focal point, ever. That is, in the worship. There can be a time when preaching is the focal point and something special, but in the worship of the church, the preaching is not the focal point. It's valuable, it's useful, it's indispensable, but it's not the focal point. Yeah. Do you think that the Orthodox Church, as we're looking back over the last 20 years that, that you've been canonical, do you think that the Orthodox Church is doing the job it should be in reaching the unchurched and the unsaved? You know, the New Agers, the Eastern Religious Group, the Buddhists. We were just accused on the last program we did by a nice evangelical man that sent us an email that we were sheep stealers because we mentioned evangelicals are coming to the Orthodox Church. So talk to us about that. Are we sheep stealers, number one? And number two, are we doing a good enough job of getting the people that don't truly know Christ at all? Now you're going to have to keep me straight on those two questions because yeah, they're the first different. one yeah. is very important. Let's start with that one. Then. I will tell you who the greatest sheep stealer in the history of the world was. Paul of Tarsus. <laughs> Everywhere he went, where did he go first? To the children of the house he of Israel. He went to the synagogue. Hmm. He went to the Jewish community. And what did he do when he got there? Well, maybe the first time he was a little surprised when it split. Maybe the second time he said, oh, perhaps there is a trend. But come on, after a little while, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Furthermore, was it in Thessalonica where he sets up shop next door to the synagogue? This sheep stealing thing is a joke. It's, it's something that is it's created to try to protect people from leaving their churches. Come on, Kevin. Most churches are swinging door churches. People come and go. I, I'm not even the slightest bit affected by the sheep stealing idea. Talk to me about the unchurched, the unsaved, the New Agers, the Buddhists. Now that's a different story. Almost any immigrant church is going to be weak initially in terms of evangelism. However, it doesn't take all that long before they are going to change that I believe that the last 20 years, which is how long I've been Orthodox, in those 20 years, there has been much change in terms of presenting the message of Christ, presenting the claims of Christ, preaching the gospel to the unchurched, the non-believers, as well as to other Christians. Because Now, why would I preach the gospel to another Christian? Because that other Christian is probably not really satisfied down in his innermost being as to what his experience with Christ is. Why? Well, probably because it's not being offered to him. So we need to present the gospel to the, those who have never heard it, to those who have heard it but have not responded, but to those who have heard it and responded, but are, they still know there's more. I was one of those. I knew there was more. When I was 19 years old, I thought... If this is all there is to it, I'm going to be a Christian. But it's not what I thought it was going to be. So, yes, we've got a job to do, and we're getting there, but we have more to do. 
And you mentioned that about your personal experience in your book, Divine Energy, which I was reviewing as, uh, as we began uh, uh, thinking about having you on the program. Well, Archpriest and Father John Braun, um, author of books, uh, former Campus Crusade staff member, leader of the Evangelical Orthodox Church, pastor of St. Anthony Church in La Jolla, California. It's been a delight to have you on the Illumined Heart radio program. And I, and I just want to say for all of us that have come in through the doors that you and, and Father Peter and, and the others open, thank you for that and for your continuing ministry. We appreciate what you do so very much. And thanks for being with us today. Well, and may God bless you and everyone who hears this. Thank you. And for those of you that like to input on this program, you may reach us, uh, as usual, through email, illuminedheart at ancientfaithradio.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to another edition of The Illumined Heart with co-hosts Kevin Allen and Steve McMeans, a production of Ancient Faith Radio and St. Barnabas Orthodox Church in Costa Mesa, California. If you'd like information on Orthodox Christian speakers for your next event, go to orthodoxspeakers.com. That's orthodoxspeakers.com. Join us again next week for another edition of The Illumined Heart.